Our text for this morning is going to be Jude, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of Almighty God. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, we ask again that you would add your blessing to our study of your holy word. Accomplish your will in all of our lives, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And you can be seated. So today we begin a look at one of the more neglected books in the New Testament, A lot of you would call this one of those books that are the clean pages in your Bibles. You have a bunch of notes and fingerprints in it. Jude is tucked in between the letters of John and Revelation, and it's something many of us give a single day's look during the Bible in a year plan. Many Christians have never studied it. Many Christians have never heard it preached. Why? Maybe maybe it's because this is such a short little letter. Maybe it's because it's not written by Peter or Paul. Maybe it's just because Jude is set in the canon between the letters of John just before Revelation. In Revelation, such a big, long, mysterious, fascinating, movie-makeable book. Not good movies, but movie-makeable. But y'all, will you hear me when I say to you that Jude is worth your time? It really is. It's short, but it's power-packed. In Jude, you're going to see glorious things about the gospel and about who you are. In it, you're going to hear warnings that you do not want to miss. And in it, you will see one of the most beautiful doxologies in all of Scripture. Jude is a letter written to a church that's being threatened by dangerous deceivers who would drag the people of God away from the true gospel. And Jude, while exalting the gospel, calls on Christians to rest in Christ even as we do battle for the faith. So Lord willing, we're going to spend three weeks in this little letter, only 25 verses, and then we'll return to finish our look at the gospel according to John. Today, we're going to look at the opening verses And we're going to hear God's call for us to, as a sermon title might say, contend for the faith. Let's get ready to find four points that you can take down if you're that kind of person. Point number one, know who you are in Christ. Point number one, know who you are in Christ. And that's verse one. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So, like an email, with a from and a to field at the top, you guys know how all your email have that? Most New Testament letters begin with a greeting that includes who's writing the letter and to whom the letter is sent. 
The author of this letter is Jude. And Jude, if you don't know, is a shortened form of the name Judas. Jude is the brother of James. Now, if you look at the Bible, there are lots of Judes. And there are lots of Jameses, lots of Judases. I mean, Jesus had two disciples who were called Judas, for heaven's sake. But for the from field in this note to make any sense, for the recipients to have any idea which Jude and which James we're talking about, the James mentioned here has to be the author of the book of James. He was a leader in the Jerusalem church, and he is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, real quick, why do I say half-brother? Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Joseph was not the physical father of Jesus. But Joseph was the father of James. Jude also is another half-brother of Jesus. He's a son born to Joseph and Mary in the ordinary way that married folks have babies. In fact, you see both James and Jude's names listed in Matthew. In Matthew 13, 55, we read, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? It's interesting, by the way, that in Jude and in James, these half-brothers of Jesus never highlight They never highlight their earthly, familial relationship with Jesus as if that was what would give them rank. Instead, Jude calls himself here the servant of the Lord Jesus and a brother of James. That Jude is the brother of James helps you to know which Jude is writing this letter. But Jude's identity is defined by his position as a true servant of Jesus. Now, the Greek word for servant here, you guys know it by now, right? Is the word, it's often rightly translated slave. It's the Greek doulos. Jude has no rank in himself. Instead, his identity, his authority, his ranking is wrapped up in his role as one who is under the authority of Jesus Christ. We listen to Jude not because of his family relationship, but because he is writing under the authority of his master. And to whom is Jude writing? Honestly, we don't know. The letter, it's clearly sent to a local church. It addresses a problem that a particular people are facing, but Jude didn't write down for us in what city that church is located. All we have in the address is that the people receiving this letter are the ones who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude wants you to know he's writing to true Christians. In the past, they were called by God. In the present, they are beloved of God the Father. And from now through eternity, they are kept for God in Jesus Christ. They are kept for Jesus Christ. The persons of the Holy Trinity are working in perfect harmony to save these people and keep these people saved forever. Okay, those are the basic details of the address fields in the email. You with me so far? What are we supposed to gain? That's the first point. Know who you are in Christ. The way Jude describes himself and the recipients of this letter 
It describes all who are really Christians. Do you know Jesus? Then this applies to you. This is who you are. And the key words are servant, called, beloved, and kept. And every one of those words, friends, is glorious. Jude calls himself a servant, a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in American culture, we know that the word slave stirs up some bad connotations of the ugliest evil that the world has ever known. But Jude is not drawing here an image from man-stealing, family-destroying, race-based chattel slavery. That slavery was evil, plain and simple. No. Jude lived in a different context. It was that of the Roman Empire. When the slave or the servant of a master there, when a person was a slave, when a person was a servant of a master in the Roman Empire, that person was often a dedicated, prized part of the family household. Now, without question, a servant, a slave in the Roman Empire was somebody under authority. No servant was confused for who the master is. Servants follow the commands of the master. But servants in the first century could go out into the community. They could transact business on their master's behalf when granted his authority to do so. When we read the New Testament, Paul, James, Jude all call themselves servants of Jesus. Now, unlike Paul, James, and Jude, you and I are not authorized to write down the revelation of God as scripture. None of y'all are, are apostles. But, all of us who know Jesus are his servants, too. We are under Jesus' authority. We are empowered by Jesus and authorized by Jesus, by him, to, to go out and make disciples. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Who are the saved? The saved are those who have confessed Jesus as Lord. That includes a grasp of the deity of Jesus, but it really includes a willing surrender on your part to Jesus as your Lord. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus, with all authority there is, sends his servants out to make disciples. In this section, we also learn from Jude that Christians are called all people who are saved have experienced, whether they can explain it or not, the drawing power of the call of God that moved them from unbelief to belief, from personal autonomy to surrender to the Lord. Christians, is that true? Did you have a spot where you all of a sudden you knew God called you to him and you had to go? Tom Schreiner in his commentary here explains it this way. English readers, when asked to define the word called, might give the definition invited. 
Such a definition would misunderstand radically what Jude intended. The term called does not merely mean that God invited believers to be his own. Those whom God calls are powerfully and inevitably brought to faith in Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. The call of God is extended only to some and is always successful so that all those who are called become believers. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That golden chain of redemption includes God setting his love on a people before the dawn of time, those whom he foreknew, he loved beforehand, and those whom he loved beforehand, he predestined to be his. And all those he predestined, he called. And all those he called, he justifies. And all those he justifies, he will eventually perfectly glorify. Do you understand there are no lost links in this chain? There are none who fall off. You might say, are you sure about that? Let me ask you, is there anybody in the world that Jesus will justify that he will not ultimately glorify? Is there anybody that he will call that he won't justify then? No. Is there any he will predestine he will not call? No. If you are a believer, you can also identify yourself as one called by God to salvation. Now, before you dismiss that as, all right, that's a bunch of irrelevant, heady theology. And by the way, I've got a ton of sympathy for folks who are wrestling with that issue. But before you dismiss it, Understand, there's a great biblical benefit to knowing that if you're a believer, you're called by God. Very soon in this very short letter, Jude is going to start warning against false teachers, dangerous deceivers doing damage to the church. How good must it be for a believer to know that in his case or in her case, we've been called by God, drawn by God's sovereign power to be a genuine servant of Jesus. We're servants. We're called. Now those two things might not necessarily hit you in the feels. But look at how Jude call, or says, or what he says about the called. First, we who are called are beloved in God the Father. I want you to hear that word. Will you listen to me and hear this word? This is scripture. This is God. You know Jesus? Are you called? Then you're beloved. If you're called by God to faith in Jesus, you can know that you are the beloved of the Father. God the Father loves you. Sometimes I fear that we heady Reformed people miss this. You are loved 
by the God who called you and who saved you. Don't get over that. What a joy it is. We've been talking about being God's servants. We're under his authority. We've been talking about being irresistibly called. What good news it is to know that the one who has called us to himself loves us. God genuinely treasures his children. God is committed to doing us ultimate good in his perfect eternal sovereign will. Do you struggle with believing, Christians, that God loves you? As I said to one of you, and we talked about just the other day, God's not mad at you. God doesn't dislike you. God doesn't want rid of you. If you've come to Jesus for forgiveness and mercy in Christ, he loves you with a love that's bigger than you could possibly imagine. And the called are also kept for Jesus Christ. While the church to which Jude is writing faces those who want to mislead them, Jude is clear that true believers are kept for Jesus Christ. We will not be lost. We will not wander off into destruction. God chose us, called us, loves us, keeps us. The story of eternity, the story of forever, is that God, the triune God, chose to display his glory by saving a people for himself. God the Father chose a people to be his own, a people he would give to his son as a gift. The Father sent the Son to save his people. The Son willingly chose to be sent, knowing he would receive the saved as his reward. The Spirit of God calls the people of God to faith in Jesus. He indwells us, he seals us, and keeps Keeps us for Jesus. In all of this, God gets all the glory. God thought of our salvation, planned our salvation, accomplished our salvation, applied our salvation, preserves us in our salvation, and will perfectly and completely and rightly finish our salvation. We, for our part, are the beneficiaries of this beautiful plan of God. We, who were sinners before God, deserving destruction, are granted grace, life, and love for God, from God as he keeps us and he grants us a perfect soul satisfying forever in his presence. We did nothing to earn that grace. Instead, we received salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So Christians, what's the point? Know who you are in Christ. Have you come to Jesus? You're a servant of Jesus. You are called, beloved, and kept. Let that be your true identity. Don't try to be something else. Don't wear false labels of things that aren't you. Serve Jesus, rejoice in your calling, rest in the love of God, call yourself the beloved of God the Father and rejoice in the identity that you get to be called the one beloved by God the Father and hope in the fact that you're kept for Jesus Christ, part of the glorious gift of the Father to the Son. 
Your eternity, Christian, is secure because of the perfect work of Jesus and the faithful love of the Father. Now, let me ask real quick, if you don't have that, would you like to have that kind of love and relationship with God? Would you like to know God's love, God's mercy, God's preserving power? If you don't know him, come to Jesus, right? Come to Jesus. Repent, believe, and be saved. God will welcome all who turn from self and put their faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work. I invite you today, trust in Jesus for life. And when you have Christ and when you know who you are in Christ, that's going to lead you to our second point here in the greeting. Point number two, rejoice in the goodness of the gospel. Rejoice in the goodness of of the gospel. Jude verse 2 says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So in New Testament letters, besides having the to and the from field in the, in the email, there's always or very often at the beginning of the letter a blessing that he pronounces, the author pronounces, on the recipient. And Jude is no exception here. Jude has identified the people as called, beloved, and kept. And now he's going to help them see what it is that they've received and what it is they're going to continue to receive in Christ. And Jude gives us three blessings on the people because Jude, he loves threes in this book called Beloved and Kept, Mercy, Peace, and Love. Now, when you think about mercy, I want you to think of two things. First, I actually want you to think about the faithful goodness of God. In the Old Testament, when, when writers wrote of God's loving kindness, they wrote of his hesed love, covenant-making, covenant-keeping love. Sometimes they paralleled that with speaking of God's mercies. In Lamentation 3.22, we see, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. So God's mercy includes his love of you. But, the love of God includes mercy, meaning God choosing not to give you the negative things that you deserve for sinning against him. By our own actions, we have earned from God judgment, right? The mercy of God is that God chooses to forgive us and withhold his wrath and to instead give us goodness. Peace with God is a result of having the mercy of God. See, before you knew Jesus, you were an enemy of God. You were at odds with God. You were at war with God. But when we received the mercy of God in Christ, God moved us out of the category of being his enemy to being his friend and being his child. God made peace with us through the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. We talked about love, by the way, peace, mercy, or mercy, peace, love. We talked about love and we talked about beloved earlier. And they're very similar words. They both come from agape. In scripture, what's it mean to love somebody? Bottom line, don't lose this. I'll say it over and over again when I preach. To love is to be committed to doing them good. To love somebody is to have a commitment to doing that person good. 
even when doing them good is costly. Even when it's hard. The one who loves another will sacrifice to do that other person good. Love includes affection, true affection, right? It doesn't make any sense to be like, I love them, but I can't stand them. That's not really true. Some of us joke that that could be the case, but it's not really the way it works. Love brings and grows affection. But love is way bigger than affection. All who are saved by God are beloved in Christ, meaning God has affection for us and is committed to doing us good. And all who are saved, all who are saved, have mercy, have peace, and have love. And Jude, in this greeting, blesses the people by asking that these things be multiplied to the people. Jude wants the people of God to experience more and more and more of the things that we already have because we're children of God. So let me ask you, have you received mercy in Jesus? Have you already experienced the mercies and kindnesses and the sweetness of God? Have it more. Know it more. Understand it more. Rejoice in it more. Are you at peace with God because Jesus has paid for your sins? Experience that peace more. Think about it. Rejoice in it. Be grateful for it. Meditate on it so that this peace will rule your thoughts and your emotions in the middle of a hard world. Has God loved you in Christ? Love him. Rejoice in the fact that God has already shown you unfathomable love in sending his son to rescue you from your sin. Know that God loves you and God's committed, committed to your good. Rest in that truth. Let it mark every inch of your life. Christians, rejoice in the goodness of the gospel. You've received mercy You've received peace. You've received love. And these are still yours in Jesus. And the more you love these things, the more you let them mark who you are, the more you will have joy and the more you'll stand strong in the Savior. All right, that's the greeting. That's the to and the from. I told you there was stuff in there, right? That's glorious stuff, but let's move a little forward now. We know to whom Jude is writing. We know which Jude is writing. Let's ask, why is Jude writing? This is like the subject line, but more. Point three, contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Look at the next verse, verse three. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So it seems that Jude has wanted to write these folks a letter for a little bit. Originally, Jude wanted to write a sweet little letter to the people of this church focusing on the glories of the gospel, what Jude calls our common salvation. But something's happened. And it's changed the focus and the tone of Jude's letter. Some necessity has emerged that has shifted Jude's letter's purpose. Perhaps Jude's original intent was to write a soft little celebrative letter. It's going to be so sweet. I'm just going to encourage their little hearts. 
But instead, Jude's letter includes a battle cry. Jude is sounding the alarm. He's calling the people to get ready to fight. The word for contend is a word that's used both in a military context and in the arena of athletic competition. It's the same word we get the word agonize from. And it means to strive with everything you've got. Jude wants these people to fight with every last ounce of energy that they have for something. And the people are to contend for the faith. Now, this is not a mere fight for belief in general. This is not a Disney, oh, have faith, believe. This is not a, who was it? Was it Charles in his coronation just recently changed his name from the defender of the faith to a defender of faith? It's not a faith for faith's sake. The call to contend for the faith is a call to fight for the singular gospel and everything it entails. The people are to cling to true faith and not allow it to be perverted, not allow it to be lost. And Jude lets us know that the faith, the one faith, the true faith, the faith is a thing that was once and for all time handed down to the saints. There's one faith, that faith was transmitted one time and there is no godly way to mess with it or to change it. When you think of the once and for all time nature of the faith handed down, your mind should be drawn to one thing, dear friends. Scripture. God gave his apostles the authority under inspiration to write down his holy word one time. It was a one-time thing. Once scripture had been penned, that sort of revelation from God was completed. The canon of scripture, the authoritative measure of scripture is closed. As we read in Hebrews 1 verse 2, God has spoken to us, spoken with finality. The faith was handed down perfectly. It was handed down completely. It was handed down once and for all time. Christians, God is calling on you and on me to contend for the faith. This is an urgent need. Jude let it change the entire focus of his communication with the local church, and God saw fit to record it for us. This is not a small matter. This is a big honking deal. Neither is this a thing we can put off. We are to be ready right now to contend, to agonize, to fight for the faith. So the call for you and me is to contend for the faith. We cannot take it lightly. We need to know the faith, cling to the scripture, hold fast to the gospel, and not let anybody, anywhere, anytime move us. And there's nothing in this call, by the way, that says you get to be nasty about it. In Sunday school growth class, we talked about the fact that some people are persecuted for the faith and some people are persecuted because they're jerks. If you're persecuted because you're a jerk, that's not, on, that's not on Jesus, that's on you. There's no reason to be nasty. But there is a clear command that we not allow ourselves to be moved from the true faith, not even an inch, not even for a minute. 
We love being peaceable. We love being peacemakers. We should never, ever fight for the sake of fighting. But true followers of Jesus will give our all to guard the good deposit of the faith that was once and for all time handed down to the saints. And we're going to see in this command the reminder. We're dealing with a finalized revelation. The canon, as I said, is closed. So I want you to hear this. This matters for some of us more than others. There is no such thing as a new authoritative word from God. There is no such thing as a new, you've got to listen to it, authoritative divine revelation. So we need to be careful, very, very careful with our language when we talk about God speaking. God has spoken where? In his word. God has given us the faith for which we contend. Let's not present to others that we think that we're hearing new revelation from God. God already gave us everything we need to know him and to honor him when he gave us his holy word. Y'all, there's a reason our church is so focused on Scripture so eager to dig into theology. We want to know and to preserve the faith. We want to follow the command to contend for the faith. And we know we live in a world that would have us compromise it. Now, what we just read, that's the theme. That's the focus of this little letter. Jude wants Christians to contend for the faith, the singular faith. And as we read on, We're going to see that there's a reason this needed to be said. Point number four, watch out for dangerous deceivers. Watch out for dangerous deceivers. Verse four, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So why is Jude sounding the alarm? Certain people have crept in unnoticed. There are people who are among the local church. Perhaps they're traveling teachers who were welcomed in because at first glance they seem solid. Perhaps they're folks who live in the community, who expressed an interest in the church. But they're not genuinely changed by Christ. However the people are here, however they've made it in among the body, they've flown in under the radar and they're dangerous. What we know for sure about these dangerous deceivers is that they are destined for condemnation, which is one way we know, even though they're among the people of the church, they're not true believers. They're not saved. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if they're destined for condemnation, they ain't in Christ Jesus. With me? Jude tells us that the condemnation of people like these false teachers, these deceptive interlopers, has been designated long ago. 
Perhaps it's a reference to the fact that God has always known who was destined for destruction, but most likely here, this is a reference to the fact that God's word from the Old Testament forward has always promised the condemnation of people like these men. Well, what's so wrong with these people Jude's warning against? Look at what he calls them. Three things, because Jude loves threes. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God in the sensuality, and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Three things. They're ungodly. You know what that means in simple summary? They're against God. They're not for God. What do they do? They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. These people who are sneaking into infiltrating the church somehow hint at the grace of Jesus and at the same time, encourage people toward immorality. And it's probably there a reference to sexual immorality. Now, does that sound just inconceivable to you? Just look at the culture we live in. There are people today who would claim to have a relationship with Jesus, who would claim to teach people the way, and who accept and even encourage things God has strictly forbidden in his word. In our day, it's very popular for people to attempt to gain social popularity by telling people, oh, I love Jesus on the one hand, but I oppose the teaching of scripture about the family, about sex, about homosexuality, about gender, and all the rest. In Jude's day, Sexual immorality was actually a part of the pagan worship at the temples of idols. We, look, human beings have perverted sex and sexuality ever since the garden. It ain't new. Our generation is not the first one to figure it out. In our day, championing sensuality is part of fitting in with American culture, isn't it? God's clear. Perverting his grace towards sensuality, that is the act of an ungodly person. And the ungodly also deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a theological denial, just in case you're thinking about, about it that way. This is not an error in Christology. This is not a denial of the Nicene Creed. This is a denial of the mastery and the lordship of Jesus. It's interesting, the, the Greek word for master there is the word we get the word despot from. He's the king, y'all. The dangerous deceivers teach people to do things forbidden by Jesus. And in doing so, they, by their actions, by their teachings, deny that Jesus is actually their Lord. But don't forget, Jesus is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? If you call Jesus Christ, you're calling him God's anointed king. If Jesus is Christ, he's your king, your Lord, your master, your sovereign, your king. If you teach people to go against his commands, to go against his written word, to go against the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints, you do not follow Jesus. So watch out for dangerous deceivers. 
From the first century on, the church has had people who try to slip in and pervert the faith. Be on guard. Fight for the faith. Now, let me pose an important question as we get ready to wrap up. What is it, what is it that makes the faith vulnerable to such deceivers? Oddly enough, Oddly enough, I think that what makes the faith vulnerable to deceivers is what makes the faith beautiful. Grace. The deceivers try to pervert the grace of God. So as we wrap up, I want to make a couple clarifying comments. I want you to listen to me if you know Jesus. I want you to listen to me if you don't know Jesus. First, if any person is ever to be right with God, you, me, your grandma, anybody, if anybody's going to be right with God, their salvation must be entirely of grace. None of us is okay with God because of things we do. No, no. None of us has ever obeyed enough. None can. The only way we can be saved is to believe in Jesus and to entrust our very souls to his finished work. If you've not believed, I urge you, believe today. And second, all, who entrust themselves to Jesus, do so while repenting of sin. We do not impress God with our repentance. Not saying that. But if we're truly forgiven by God in Christ, we will change. You guys know that's true, don't you? God changes us. And we struggle to change so that we honor the Lord. Now, changing our behavior has nothing to do with saving us. But all who are saved will change as a result of the new life we are given in Christ. So please understand, none of us is going to be perfect in this life. How many of you are perfect today? Spouses, how many of your spouses are perfect? Oh, Missy's not in here. She can't tell you about me, right? Some of us are going to struggle and battle against sin. And sometimes we're going to have victory and sometimes we're going to fail until Jesus calls us home. That's not a surprise. But, but if, you are saved. You're going to have a desire to honor the Lord. You will feel conviction when you fail. And you will seek to be changed by God's Spirit in God's Word. In contrast, the dangerous deceivers are the kind of people who pretend to have grace and then use that supposed grace as a license to do wrong with impunity. Better watch out for those folks. 
You want to call those folks to repent and believe and find true grace in Christ. You want to call them to be saved. What do we do? Bottom line, know who you are in Christ. Rejoice in the goodness of the gospel. Watch out for dangerous deceivers and contend for the faith. Let's pray together. Lord, as we bow, we just once again call on you to have mercy. We are super, super grateful for the gospel. We are super grateful for grace. We are super grateful that we must not, could not attempt to earn our way to you, but Jesus has done it all. At the same time, Lord, at the same time, we ask you to help us to fight for the faith. Help us to know who you call us. You don't call us wicked sinners that you don't love. You call us your servants, the called, the beloved, the kept. You call us saints of God in Christ Jesus. Help us to live what you say we are and to have joy in knowing that you love us. We've never earned an ounce of it. You've given us so much. Help us to have the peace and the mercy and the love that's in the gospel. Help us to watch out for things that would tempt us to go astray. And help us, God, to fight for the faith that your name would be glorified. Protect your church from those who would do it harm. That we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.